It's a privilege this morning to be able to, to gather and to worship the Lord and to do so so freely. I just think of our brothers and sisters around the world that are, that are hiding, who are, who are hiding their Bibles and, and going out to wherever they've hidden them and, and to go get them and to gather in the evening times with the shades on their windows just so they could read the Word of God. And yet, brothers and sisters, we have the freedom to stand out in the open and to, to not only read the Word of God, but to worship Him this morning. So let us take advantage of that privilege that the Lord has given to us as we take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. And let us listen carefully as we hear the Word of the living God this morning. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over her head, excuse me, over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so thankful this morning to be able to, to come into your presence and to worship you. Lord, thank you for the songs that we could sing. Uh, may they be on our hearts this week as we think much about you and as we worship you, Lord, not only in our personal worship time, family worship time, but Lord, just even throughout the day, may our, may our minds and our thoughts be lifted up to you in glorious praise and worship. And Father, we pray now, as we are still, that we may be still before you to hear as you teach and instruct us. Open our hearts, Lord. Help us to focus upon you. We know that Satan doesn't want us to hear your word. We know that he wants to snatch up the seeds of your word that are given this morning. But we pray, Lord, that, that your word would find fertile hearts, ready to receive what you have to say by faith. So we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts today. In your name, amen. So this morning, I want to just ask you a few questions as we open. And I want you to think about this. What really matters to you this morning? What really matters to you? 
What, what is of great importance to you? What, if you were to lose it today, would be devastating to you? What do you treasure above all things? Might it be your family? Maybe your wealth? Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe what people think of you is very important. Maybe it's your health. I mean, the, the list can go on and on and on and on. There's any number of things. What is it in your life that when it is threatened, you become angry because you want to hold on to that? Well, the biblical account that we're going to look at today really gets to the heart of the worth of Jesus. What is Jesus worth to this woman? What, what, what is he worth to the chief priest and the scribes? What, what is Jesus worth to Judas and the disciples? But most importantly, what is Jesus worth to you this morning? Do you know the worth of the person, life, and death of Jesus Christ? I, I want to look at three reactions this morning to Christ and his coming death. First, I want us to look at the reaction of the chief priest and the scribes. Then secondly, that of Judas. And then finally, of the woman. Now, the reason why I want to do that is because these are the same reactions that people have to Christ, even today. And so, let's look at those this morning. First of all, that of the chief priest and the scribes. You see, as they looked at Jesus, they saw Jesus as a threat to what they valued and what they treasured. Now, these were men that were held in tremendous respect in their day and time. I know for us, the religious leaders are always the bad guys. They're the guys that wear the black hats, right? You know, we look at them and we think, I don't want to be like them. That's not how people viewed these men in their day. They were the Sinclair Ferguson's of their day. They were the Al Mohler's of their day. They were the Kevin DeYoung's of their day. They were the H.B. Charles Jr.'s of their day. These were men that others looked up to and said, I want to be like them. They were experts in the Word of God. They knew the Word of God. If you had a question, they could tell you. But unfortunately, they liked the respect that people gave to them. But Jesus was a challenge to them. And he exposed them for who they really are. And so they were threatened by Jesus. And one thing that is true of God is that he will expose us for who we truly are. And sometimes we like that, sometimes we don't. For some people, for God to expose their heart is just such a relief and such a joy. Because they, they see the sin of the heart, their hearts. They see the wickedness in their own hearts. And, and, and they, as much as we work so hard to look so good on the outside, you know, sometimes we can see on the inside that ooey-gooey nastiness and stench of our own sin. And, and when Jesus comes, when God comes and he exposes our hearts like he does in Psalm 139, when, when, when he, he knows a thought that's in our minds before we even think it, he knows the words even before we even say it, when we realize that God knows us in that way, and yet he still chooses to love us regardless. Brothers and sisters, that is a joyous thing. Isn't it neat to be loved in spite of who you are? And that's what God does for many. And so, for some, to, 
to be exposed by God is, is a glorious thing, to know that he loves us and he accepts us. But for other people, not so much so. And that's sort of where the religious leaders fell into. They, they did not see such vulnerability you know, as something good. It was more really than they could handle. They had worked so hard to develop this reputation and this persona, and they didn't want anything to threaten the image that they had created of themselves. And so the chief priests and, and the scribes really had no love for Jesus. And part of that was is because their treasure lied elsewhere. And that's the problem, is it not? We're not told specifically what their beef was with Jesus, but we do know, along with the Pharisees and Sadducees, that they considered Christ a threat. Their thought was that it was better for the Son of God to lose his life than for them to lose their treasure. For them to lose their place of honor and respect. And so the most chilling words, I think, in this whole passage that I read this morning is verse 11. Look with me at verse 11. And when they heard it, they were glad. When they heard that they would be able to kill Jesus, that God had provided an opportunity for them to get rid of this man, they rejoiced. They were happy. They were talking about murdering, killing the Son of God. Now, uh, just look at this. Look at the irony of this. If, if you would, turn over to John 18. We're going to flip back and forth between Mark and John a little bit this morning. But John 18, and Jesus had been arrested, and he was on trial. And let me read John 18, 28. It said, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, that's the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. And they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Do you see what precision and carefulness that they go to to make sure that they're, they're not polluted so that they could still celebrate the Passover feast that God had given to them? So pious. Doesn't it sound so pious? So religious on the outside so as not to defile themselves. But on the inside, at the same time that they're saying to the governor, I'm sorry, we can't come into your house because you're a Gentile and we don't want to defile ourselves. So the governor had to actually come outside of his house to meet with these religious leaders and say, okay, what's your beef? What, what's he on trial for? They didn't do that outside the house because the religious leaders were so insistent and yet their hearts were so wicked they didn't even realize they were conspiring to kill the Son of God. Such hypocrisy. They, they don't want the dirt of the Gentiles on their feet so as to become unclean, but they don't mind having the blood of the Son of God on their hands. Their hypocrisy is, is breathtaking. They simply want to kill Jesus, and that's all they, they can think about. And how soon can we get it done? And how can we get away with it? And they were saying in verse 2, surely we can't do it during the feast because the people like Jesus too much, and we'd have a riot on our hands if we, if we killed Jesus during the feast. I thought it's interesting, I told my wife this week, I said, I'm reading this text and I'm going, they have this dilemma that they can't figure out. They're trying to figure out how to sin, and God provides them the opportunity. Now, that doesn't mean God led them into sin. Their hearts were already sinful. It's just God provided the way, and, and they rejoiced in that. And what we see here in the religious leaders, and I want you to hear this, because this is, this is what happens in the heart of someone who is trying to protect their treasure from Jesus. 
What we see here is the coldness and the deadness of a Christless heart. The coldness and the deadness of a Christless heart. If, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, then the love of Christ is not controlling your heart, no matter how religious you may appear. And, and that is the way your heart is. I just want you to know that this morning. You can look very religious on the outside. But if you really are trying to protect your treasures from Jesus because he's getting too close to them, and you have other things that you value other than Jesus Christ, then this is what your heart looks like. But I, I'll be honest with you, that is the way that all of our hearts were at one time. Right? If our, if our hearts are not that way, it's only because of the mercy and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because you and I are no different by nature. And if you're honest with yourself, I mean truly honest, you would have to admit that if the time was right and the price was right and the opportunity was there and you thought you could get away with it, you would murder people too. Because we do that all the time. Do we not? We may not do it with our hands, but we do it with our tongues. We seek to destroy others who oppose us. And, and, and we hear that sometimes. We hear the murderous rage in the words that we speak. When, when you talk about the faults of others or you recount to a friend how this person or that person has wronged you and done all kinds of evil against you. Kids, you do this. Every time you go to your parents and you tattle on your brother and sister, it's exactly what you're doing. You're speaking those murderous words to destroy those who are opposing you because your brother and sister is not letting you have what you want. That's all of us by nature until Christ indwells us by his Holy Spirit and begins to change us from the inside out, learning to lovingly be patient with others even in their sin. That's a work that Christ does. He takes us who are self-centered, who are consumed with ourselves, and he sets us free. The chief priests and scribes saw the death of Christ as an opportunity to protect their treasure. And all of us in this room and, and even watching via the live stream either treasure Jesus Christ as our treasure or we treasure something else. You either will treasure the creator or treasure something in the creation. Because our hearts are made to treasure things. Our hearts are made to value things. Our, our hearts are made to worship. And if you treasure anything but Christ, the Bible warns, that's an idol. And idols are always bloodthirsty. And they always demand that things be sacrificed to them. And you know what? We're willing to do that. We're willing to sacrifice things to our idols. To give almost anything to please our idols so that we can maintain maybe control or so that we can maintain pleasure in our life or, or convenience or power or to have self-control. And, and we'll sacrifice almost anything, maybe our families, our wife and our children, our, our health, our friends, whatever it takes to keep that which we treasure. But it's only when Christ is our treasure that the sacrifices he made brings life to our souls Amen. as we lay ourselves down in the service of others. Our idols always require that we lay other people down for service to ourselves, right? But the sacrifice of Christ 
always brings life, where the sacrifice to idols always brings death. And if you're not worshiping Christ this morning, then you are worshiping something that will eventually bring you death and maybe even death to those that are around you. So be not deceived, brothers and sisters, by such a, a view of Christ, as if you have to protect your treasures from him. But also we see the example of Judas. Judas, he saw Jesus as an opportunity for great gain. In Judas, we see that he saw an opportunity to get treasure. And people do that all the time. They join the church, they're part of the church. They do that to get something out of Christ. And that might be, you might be thinking of a televangelist, right? You know, he's there to make money, you know? That might be a little bit of a stereotype. I'm not sure every televangelist is doing that. Uh, there are some, I understand that. But, but some people can do that. They do that. But some pastors are pastors just so that they can have power and authority over other people and do so in a wrong way. Um, there are other people who, who profess faith in Christ just to have an appearance of religion, uh, just to be considered respectable. Now, in our country, that's changing, is it not? People don't have the love for the church. As a matter of fact, there's not only not a love for the church as there once was, but now people even now look at you and go, you're Christian, you're bigoted. You are, you are awful people. You are narrow-minded. You are outdated. You need to be done away with. So, you know, but it's still in some parts of our country, the appearance of evil is a respectable thing. So to be part of a church is, is desirable because I get something out of it. Maybe for some people, they want to be part of the church just because they see the community. You know, I think of the, the uh, TV show Cheers, you know, and they have that theme song about the bar where everybody knows your name and you got friends. Well, the church was the first Cheers, I guess, okay? <laughs> I'm not saying the church is a bar, but, you know, it, it is the place where there's first true community to be part of the people of God. And there is a blessing that comes from being in fellowship and having people who love you and who accept you just the way you are. They're not perfect. They're not going to do it perfectly. They're going to offend you. At some point in time. But then they're going to ask your forgiveness. You're going to be reconciled. And you go on. And you continue to love one another. And there's a blessing that we can get from that. So, so people do seek after Jesus just to, for what they can get out of it. And Judas was the kind of man who knew the price of everything. But he really knew the value of nothing. He, he watched the woman sacrifice. And what was his first thought? What does the text say? Look. What a waste. What a waste. Now, if you look over at John chapter 12, look over at John again, and we're going to flip back and forth between Mark and John 12 uh, here a little bit. But John 12, John attributes this whole interchange of the value of the ointment and the idea of the giving the money to the poor uh, to Judas. And, and John, in his account, says Judas came right out and said this to Jesus. If you look at Mark's gospel, Mark said there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? So it could be that there were several people who were thinking this in their mind, and Jesus knew that, but it was Judas who finally verbalized what the other people were saying. But as pious as Judas's words sounded to, to want to take such good care of the poor, 
Look at John chapter 12, verse 4, okay? John 12, verse 4. It says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? Now, let me just stop right there. 300 denarii. A denarii was the, the wage for a common laborer in Jesus' day, okay? So 300 denarii was just short of uh, a year's wages. You know, actually it was 82%. I figured it out. 82% of a year's wages, okay? So let's just sort of figure that, you know, we're talking about somebody who makes minimum wage. That's like seven twenty-five an hour here in Kansas. And they work a year, that's 2,000 hours. That comes out to like $14,500, okay? And let's just say that they take, they have this uh, ointment that's worth 82% of that. That would be roughly $12,000, Whew, that's some expensive perfume, is it not? I mean, I'm thinking if I have to spend 50 bucks for a bottle of perfume for my wife, I'm like spending a lot of money, you know, but $12,000? That's a lot of money. Anyway, so Judas says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I mean, that could have gone a long way. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, I want to stop here a second, especially with everything that's going on in our culture, social justice, all the different movements that we see. People could read this text incorrectly and not realize it. They could look at this and say, Jesus has this woman is putting this, uh, this ointment on him that's very expensive. They point out, you could give this money to the poor, and Jesus doesn't correct her. It's like, does Jesus not care about the poor? What's up with that? Well... I think we have to be careful here not to read our interpretation into the text. Let the text speak for itself. Because if you look at John, we see here that Jesus realizes that, that Judas, uh, while he says we could give this money to the poor, really wasn't concerned about the poor. He just wanted to have the money in the coffer so that he could skim off the top as time went on so he could get money for himself. And Jesus knew that. John tells us that. In the text, so Jesus is confronting Judas's uh, dishonesty. That's the word I'm looking for: dishonesty. But I would also suggest to you there's another thing that's wanted to be communicated here. I think the thing we have to understand is the Old Testament talks a lot, and the New Testament both talk a lot about the poor, talk a lot about the widows, talk a lot about the orphans and those that are poor, and how we are to care for them. And Jesus kept the law of God perfectly. So he kept every command. So does Jesus care for the poor? Oh, you bet. As a matter of fact, what we've got to remember is, these are Jesus' own words. Jesus is God. He's the one that said this about how people are to care for the poor. So he cares about the poor. He was just trying to get at Judas's uh, deception. But I think there's another thing in John, or excuse me, in Mark, that that we see here, as Jesus is, you know, putting himself first, is that the duty and honor we are to have to Jesus is to be above even our duty and our honor to others. That we're to put Jesus first. We're to honor Christ first. And and we have to be careful because we can prioritize the poor over prioritizing Christ. And that never really ends well 
and it never really helps the poor. Oh, we may feed them and we may clothe them, but the problem with the poor is not their wallet, but it's their souls. The problem with the rich and the poor alike is that they set their hearts on the things of this world and the things that are passing away. And, and we could do all kinds of wonderful things of feeding and clothing the poor and doing all these things, but if we never, ever, ever tell them about Christ and the true need of their souls, we have not really truly loved them. So don't get me wrong. We need to feed them. We need to clothe them. We need to show the love of Christ. Okay, but we can't just stop there. And, and so Christ is saying, as he is the priority, as we are compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we will minister to other people, rich and poor alike, in the way that they need. Not out of a sense of guilt, but out of a sense of love for him, and therefore a sense of love for other people as well, no matter where they are in this life. And so Judas' concern for the poor was merely a facade, because his real treasure was money, and the things that money could buy. Money appeared to dominate everything in Judas's life. You know, it's interesting how the love of money can ruin a person's life, rich or poor. Let, let me read from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. 1 Timothy 6, 10. For the love of money is a, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, people might look at that and say, yeah, rich people need to hear this. Okay? You know, because they really do love their money and they do they work hard they, they they work to get that money and they work hard to keep that money whether that's through their their job and their investments and everything else but i will tell you this i have been around enough people who are poor enough people who are struggling to understand that the poor can be just as guilty of loving money as the rich I, i've had friends who work very hard to strive to become rich and so they buy lots of lottery tickets and and things like that. They, there's a sort of a sense of entitlement that they have that, that they are uh, pursuing so that they might try to somehow get ahead. The point that I'm trying to make is no matter where we are in life in terms of possessions and wealth, we can all fall prey to the love of money and possessions. I don't care where we are, what your bank account is, we all can struggle with that. And when you give your life to that mindset, there's always... Three things it's going to cost. It's always going to cost you at the beginning uh, to get the wealth, right? There's always a cost to do that. Then there's the cost to sort of maintain that wealth. And then finally, the cost you pay at the end when you lose it all. You see, when Rockefeller died, someone asked the executor of his will, how much money did he leave? And the attorney smiled and he said he left all of it. He left all of it. It doesn't matter what we have when we die, we will leave all of it. I like what the Puritans said. They said, when a rich miser, kids, that's, that's somebody who hoards money, okay? Remember like uh, Scrooge McDuck, right? You know, he's a miser. Okay, so when a rich miser dies, there's such a scrambling. A family is scrambling for the money. The worms are scrambling for his body. And the devils are scrambling for his soul. It's the cost you pay at the end, if you live for the wrong God, 
is everything. As much as your you treasure, uh, excuse me, as much as your treasure, your wealth may benefit you on this earth, it does nothing for you in eternity. You leave it all when you die. And yet, how often do people follow Jesus in hopes of gaining some kind of treasure? But then we see the example of the woman who sees Jesus as an object of worship. She sees him as someone to give her treasure to. Now, turn with me over to John 12. Let's look at it a little bit more, okay? A little more detail. John 12, actually John 11. In John 11, we see Jesus raising Lazarus, right? And, uh, and this really causes a stir with the religious leaders. They definitely want to kill Jesus. This is, you know, this is not a good sign for him to start raising people from the dead. People are surely going to follow him then. As a matter of fact, they not only want to kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus because he was sort of the evidence of what Jesus was doing. So let's get rid of the evidence too. And so they were seeking to come after him. Well, then after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, then we come to John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And we've already talked about in the past about how Mark doesn't necessarily put his account sequentially. These aren't necessarily the order in which they've happened. But in John, we see, in John 12, 1, we read, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, back in John 11. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here they are having a dinner party. It looks like uh, to celebrate the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And, and the woman that's not named in Mark's gospel is actually Mary, the brother of Lazarus, or the, the sister of Lazarus. And they're meeting at Simon the leper's house. Now, I would uh, uh, suggest that Simon actually was a former leper, because if he was still a leper, he wouldn't be living in the house, right? He'd be living in a leper colony. But the implication is maybe that Jesus had healed him. So maybe there's another reason why they were celebrating. I don't know. Some uh, commentators think that Simon the leper was the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I, I don't know. There's no evidence for that, so I'll just state that for what it is. But, but Mary takes an expensive jar or bottle of ointment, remember $12,000 plus, and she pours it over Jesus. Mark says over his head. John says over his feet, and then she wipes it with her hair. Uh, most commentators you know, sort of look at this and, and, you know, you might wonder, how did she get such an expensive bottle of ointment? Well, commentators think that it was a family heirloom. That's usually how you would get something so expensive. Maybe it was part of a dowry that her parents gave to her so that she would look more appealing to a suitor who might want to marry her, right? She could bring some wealth to the family. So maybe that's what it was. That kind of ointment would also be used for funerals. So maybe it was for her funeral someday. I don't know. Uh, but it could also have been a nest egg. It was sort of a security. What if Mary never married? What if the family fell upon hard times? It would be good to have something like this as a backup, sort of as an insurance policy, a, a savings account to help her in those times. And, and while we might like to hear those kind of details, you know, uh, 
who the woman was, why she had the ointment and stuff. Uh, why that seems important to us. What's important to Mark is not the woman's identity or how she came about this great gift, but rather what Mark wants us to focus on is the nature of the act itself. The nature of the act itself. What Mary did. That's what he wants us to see. What we, we see is that she gave it all to Jesus. That which was most precious to her. That which was so costly to give. She gladly, you catch this? She gladly gave that to Jesus. And it's interesting that Jesus had told his disciples a number of times that he was going to die. At least three times he had said that. And yet they really never reacted. They sometimes had a few questions, but then they just sort of dropped it. But here we see Mary acting as if her mindset is, is that Jesus was going to give his life for her. So what could she do but to give him her all? So she takes the most expensive thing she has and she gives it to Jesus. She used this ointment as a symbol of her dedication to give her all to him. You see, she wanted to do something for her Savior before it was too late. She wanted to demonstrate her love for him. And I want to ask us this morning this. Have you given your life to Jesus like this? Have you given your life to Jesus like this? I, I'm not asking you, do you believe that you're a Christian? I'm not asking, have you given... But what I'm asking you is, have you given Jesus your heart and your will and your life? H have you said, Lord, I, I'm not holding back anything. You would be willing and gladly... You would be willing and glad, excuse me, to give Jesus anything he wants from you. And you do so not to try to like earn favor with God, but you do so out of response for the love that you have for God. You see, Mary saw that Jesus was different, and she deemed him worthy of this sacrifice. Now, that's interesting, because if you look at Mark chapter 14 and verse 4, it said, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? You see, they saw it as a waste. $12,000 worth of ointment on Jesus' head, to be honest, could seem a little excessive. I mean, if you poured a $1,000 bottle, that would have been pretty impressive, right? So why does it have to be so expensive? The brothers and sisters, it's in one sense sort of a test of the heart, it, isn't it? It's, you know, it, how do we view Jesus? Is he just an ordinary man here, or is he, he, he maybe a, a noble prophet? Or is he in fact the Lord God incarnate? Is he Jesus Christ, our Savior, our prophet, our priest, and our king? Do you see what Mark is saying here? He, there's something utterly unique about Jesus. He, he accepts the worship of others. He not only accepts it, he actually expects it. And that's what it's all about. That's what the Gospel of Mark is, is all about, saying that Jesus, he is the Son of God. And so what we give to him is not wasteful. It's a beautiful thing. And I wonder, can you, can you get into that this morning? Because I, I, I want us to put sort of all of us to 
a test. Because if you can't, if you can't grasp that, if you are tempted to say, but yeah, Pastor Rick, it was a waste. You know, I mean, I understand. We, we as Christians, we sacrifice, but do I really have to go that far in following Jesus? If, if that's really where you're coming from, then you haven't seen Jesus for actually who he really is. You really don't understand Jesus as he is. You may have some kind of picture in your mind of who he is. But you don't see him in all his glory. The, the creator, the Lord of glory, the incarnate, come in human flesh. You see, there's a very real sense in which when it comes to Christ, we can never make a sacrifice. We can never make a sacrifice. And what I mean by that is because he is always worthy to receive whatever we give to him. So it really is not a sacrifice. It is only what he deserves. Actually, he is the only one that's made a sacrifice. Because he has sacrificed for us who are unworthy. Now, I know, we think a lot of ourselves. We actually think we are pretty worthy. And you know what? To think that God sent his son to die an awful, terrible death for us. Yeah, okay, it makes sense. He should, right? We're not seeing clearly, brothers and sisters, that that's where we come from. His sacrifice was truly a great sacrifice. You know, I, I think uh, sometimes when we think about this whole idea of sacrifice, I think of Jim Elliott. Some of you know he's a mission. He was a missionary back in the 1950s. Uh, that uh, he wanted to reach the Wadani tribe in Ecuador. And they were a very vicious uh, tribe. And so he and his buddies flew in, and they went to share the gospel, and the tribe killed them dead in their tracks. Didn't even get a chance to share the gospel. Now, wouldn't it be easy to look at that and say, what a waste. What a waste. They didn't even get to tell them about Jesus Christ. They left their wives widows, their little children at home fatherless. What a waste. But you see, we, we hear the rest of the story. We hear the story about how the wives went in and lived amongst those people, brought their kids and lived amongst those people, and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Lord split that tribe wide open and brought mass revival. And so we look at that and we go, okay, maybe it wasn't such a waste. You see, we're so oriented towards the results rather than trusting God for what he's doing. But there are times when God doesn't give us the end of the story. And we may be tempted to think, what a waste. I sacrificed this and nothing happened. What a waste. So-and-so did this and nothing happened. What a waste. But God wastes nothing, brothers and sisters. And he does what he does for his glory. When we give up things for Jesus in this passing world, it's a beautiful thing. Because then people see Jesus Christ for who he truly is, that he is worthy that he is our treasure. He is the greatest treasure of all. He is the pearl of great price. And we will sell 
our possessions and everything we have just to buy the field so that we can get the pearl. He is that great of a treasure. And when Jesus looks down at you and me this morning, does he see a heart that loves him like that? I don't know about you, but as I was preparing the sermon this week, that caused me great pause. Lord, do I really love you like this? I'm not sure I do. You know, God knows all things. He sees into our hearts, as we said in Psalm 139. Do I love you, Lord? Mary did. And she did what she could. Verse 8, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You see, she thought about Christ's life and death, and she thought, what can I do? And here her eyes fall on her most treasured possession. And this morning, I just want to ask you, what can you do? What, what sacrifice has Christ called you to make? And you may say, well, Pastor Rick, he hasn't really called me to make any sacrifice. Then I'm saying you're probably not listening carefully. <laughs> you're probably so consumed with yourself that you're really not listening to his spirit. What sins are Christ calling you to lay aside? Maybe it's that, that favorite sin you have. You know which one I'm talking about. It, it's, it's the sin that, that you really want to follow Christ, but you also want to keep a place for this sin in your life. And so you sort of have carved out a niche, sort of on the back burner, so it's not really visible to everybody else in the church. But it's there. And, and you want to sort of protect that so you can sort of go back and forth to that sin and follow Christ and go back and forth. He's calling you this morning to give up that sin. He's calling you this morning to put to death, to destroy this nest that you've made for that sin, that safe place in your life for this sin. He's calling you to destroy that. He's calling you to come to Him and pray and ask for His Holy Spirit to put to death that sin in your life. Or maybe how is Christ calling you to serve? Maybe he's calling you to go share the gospel with someone, but you're really hesitant. Matter of fact, maybe you're even sort of afraid. Or, or maybe he's calling you to reach out to someone who's very needy to minister to them and be their friend and share the love of Christ with them. But you said, oh, Lord, I can't do that. Lord, I, I, I don't have time. That per you know what that person's like? Lord, they'll just suck the life out of you. And I can't do that, Lord. I, I'm married. i got a family. I got a, I, you know, you want me to care for my family. So, Lord, you don't want me to reach out to them. Look at Mark chapter 8. Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? He said, and follow me. In other words, I've done these things. I have denied myself, Jesus says. I have taken up, or I'm going to take up, my cross. And I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't already done. 
That's what it means to follow Christ. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Brothers and sisters, we live in an adulterous and a sinful generation. And it is more and more the case where we will be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Because it is contrary to the culture in which we live to follow Christ. And you're going to have to take a stand. And it's going to be so easy to say, well, I won't deny Christ. But I will act like I'm ashamed of him. I'm, I'm going to sort of relegate him to the back burner. I'll not make too big a deal that I'm a Christian. I don't want people to see that. Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When was the last time you actually denied yourself of something for the sake of Christ? What did that look like? Did you gladly do it for the sake of your Savior? You know, I wonder if we treasure Christ so little sometimes because we're not willing to let go of our treasure. For Mary, she said, it's yours, Jesus. I'll give you that which is so precious to me. But I wonder if for us, I, I, goodness, this resonates too much in my own life. I see the things that I hang on to and it gets so much in the way of my relationship with Christ. And yet Christ has set us free. You know, we can be so enslaved by our desires and our agendas and our to-do list and our goals. All these things that focus on me and what I want to get done. But you see, Christ has denied himself and he has taken up his cross. And he has died for you and me so that we might live. So that we might no longer be in bondage to these things. Now, I'm not saying to-do lists are evil. I'm not saying that. They're merely instruments that we use to, to sometimes, though, satisfy ourselves. But he has died so that we might live. That we might die to what we want. So that we might live to him. To understand that whatever we give to him, he is worthy to receive and even more. Does it grab you this morning, brothers and sisters, how blind we can be to who Christ is? How blind we can be to what is going on in our lives and what truly matters. Until we see Christ as our treasure, we will always be reluctant to give away our treasure, to give away that which matters the most to us. But he sacrificed himself for us so that we may be set free to treasure him above all things. Amen? Amen. Just like the words of Isaac Watts' hymn, my favorite, my favorite hymn of all time, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, says this. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown, Love so amazing 
so divine. What's the last part? Demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's pray. a few minutes of, of silence this morning and just, just take some time to talk with the Lord and, and just to respond to his word appropriately. this morning that we would love you as Mary loved you oh Lord that you would be the greatest treasure of our lives and Father I'm, I'm sure as we, we hear the word spoken this morning we, we see the, the ways in which we don't do that and we just come to you Lord and we pray for your mercy and your grace oh God that you would change our hearts to love you like this that you would be our greatest treasure, that there's nothing that we would not lay at your feet. Oh, Father, we pray. And I pray, Lord, and especially for those that may be hearing these words and not know you, that they would come to faith in you, to know that you are a Savior that is truly powerful to save. It's not what we do. It's not like we got to muster up enough faith to believe in you. And it's not God like we got to just try to do better. Oh, Lord, you will do the work. I just pray for you to do so, that you would make the dead to live and to know you as our Lord and Savior. We pray in your name. Amen. <laughs>